0: When you generate an entity, and let's say that if it's an LLC, it's a pass through, which means that it goes directly to the member. If it's a single member, you only have to do one tax return, which is your personal tax return and include those tax documents in your personal tax return. If it's two or more members talking about an LLC, then you file a partnership tax return and then you file your
1: personal tax return.
0: So there is different requirements that you generate by creating a new entity, right?
1: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Adalit Espinosa. Vidal is a principal partner at Invictus Advisors, a full-service company that provides CFO, CPA, and bookkeeping services. In this episode, Vidal will go over tax strategies and regulations for real estate investors. If you want to learn more about how taxes work, you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingri.comslash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventist is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do.
0: Hi, well, thank you for having us in your show. Uh, my name is Vidal Espinosa and we're a um, business accounting firm down in San Diego, California. And we help uh, small business owners navigate all the hurdles of being a small business owner when it comes to accounting, business management, and taxes. Cool.
1: And how long have you guys been in business?
0: We've been in business for over 23 years.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. So uh, can you go ahead and tell us how your firm can help real estate investors, especially those who are based in the Bay Area?
0: Well, as you know, most of our businesses nowadays can be run remotely. And what we do is we actually help real estate investors, believe it or not, that reside in Australia, Italy, Germany, Spain, and Great Britain that actually have never touched ground in the US, and they own real estate property. So what we do is we help them to a point manage their assets by structuring their portfolio. And at the same time, we take care of their compliance when it comes to city, state, and federal regulations, taxes, accounting, and banking so we can actually help you remotely.
1: Perfect. And what are some of the common things that you see new investors doing wrong when it comes to their taxes?
0: Running everything through one entity or as a sole proprietor, filing their entity with companies that do not specialize on actual structures that will help you reduce your personal liability. And at the same time, reduce your personal tax liability.
1: Do you want to go more into that? Because you said a lot of things. I don't know if I personally followed how that affects and why that's wrong to do.
0: Legal zoom for instance, it's a service that only registers your entity, your company, right? In a good structure, it's not just filing a piece of paper with the city, with the state to create an LLC, to create a corporation, to create a trust, to create a real estate trust and things like that. You actually need someone to help you navigate and guide you through that process. If you open, let's say that you're a real estate investor, right, and you create a structure, an entity, maybe a LLC or a corporation, and that corporation holds the asset, which is the property, and you're releasing, renting the property, and the same entity, rents out the property then you're exposed your exposure is big compared to having an entity that holds that property and having an entity that manages your rental property you separate and divide your liability and your exposure but not only registering your company or both of your companies will give you that protection you need legal paperwork compare with your birth certificate of your companies does that make sense Mm -hmm. so that's when you need a professional to help you do that every tax planning and every company structure has to start with solid foundations and a solid foundation starts with a proper legal structure entity structure Mm -hmm. that's where everything starts
1: And when it comes to filing taxes and let's assume you have this other entity, does the other entity also have to do their own filing or is it all part of one giant thing that you have personally?
0: It all depends on the type of tax structure for that entity. Okay. When you generate an entity and let's say that if it's an LLC, it's a pass through, which means that it goes directly to the member. If it's a single member, you only have to do one tax return which is your personal tax return and include those tax documents in your personal tax return if it's two or more members talking about an llc then you file a partnership tax return and then you file your personal tax return. so there is different requirements that you generate by creating a new entity right
1: mm-hmm. makes sense
0: so you need to consult somebody
1: Right. So for example, I had a friend who recently asked me about a tip and he was asking me what what should he do in this situation? He bought a property in Texas with a couple of his buddies. I think there's three of them total. And I'm not sure if they created an LLC per se or just a partnership. But they bought this property and you know, the cash flow on that property isn't that crazy. Maybe like a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars a month. But because I think they bought as a partnership, the CPA says, Oh, you guys have to file Separately, or I guess file for a partnership or whatever. And then that right there costs another like almost $1,000 basically wiping out their whole cash flow for the year. And he was pissed. He was telling me, what should I do about this situation? Do you have any uh, thoughts about that? Well, my immediate
0: train of thought would be first to have been bought by a holding company. Okay. Which means that it's a company that holds the asset, has no transactions with the world. Okay. and then this company since it doesn't have any transactions does not have any tax obligation second you create a managing entity which is an llc or a corporation okay and this company is the one who collects all the rent creates or generates all the expenses to manage and hold this asset this company would in turn prepare their tax return and Either pass through to the members, the partners, or shareholders, the profits or the losses. Now, each member, partner, shareholder, it's going to have to report that income or loss in their personal tax return. That will be the best and optimal structure. Now, yes, it's going to cost me more to have this additional managing company, but as a real estate investor, you invest for two things asset appreciation and positive cash flow. So you might not have a positive cash flow here, but your appreciation here, it's good, should be good. So ultimately at the end of the, you holding the asset, you're gonna generate a profit. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Also, I guess in this situation, because you have to pay for this extra filing, maybe it's better to have more than one property in these holding companies because it costs a lot of money, right? 700 bucks or so to do a filing, and you're only making a hundred bucks a month profit for cash flow.
0: I would actually have each property on different holding companies, but just one managing company. Yeah. So this managing company offsets the three, four, five properties that you have in their expenses when it comes to administrative expenses, which is a tax return.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you have a property in a holding company, you know how like depreciation is when you can. Uh, write off like one twenty seventh of the value of the, of the structure, right? Every year. Uh, how does that work? If the holding company is the one that owns the property, are you still all to write off the depreciation on from the management company? Yes. Okay. How does that work since they're two separate entities?
0: Well, remember when you depreciate your asset, okay, for tax purposes, when you sell it, you have to add it back up okay so what you're essentially doing is you're utilizing an expense that you're gonna have to return to the IRS okay so first you need to do a run and see if it's more beneficial to actually depreciate the asset or just take the expenses and absorb either the little profit for tax purposes or really depreciate okay so this holding company will transfer that expense to the managing company. Does that make sense?
1: So you're allowed to do that? Yes. Okay, interesting, cool. Any other tips and tricks regarding real estate, such as depreciation or I guess 1031 exchanges that you want to talk about? The
0: 1031 exchanges would happen on the holding company. Most investors utilize this. Most investors that are flippers can use it because of the time frame that you have to utilize your 1031 exchange. People that hold their assets and reinvest, they do that. My recommendation is that when you're ready to sell the property, you start the process of looking for a new property to apply for the 1031 exchange and you actually do it almost simultaneously as you sell and buy. My recommendation would be not do it on your own. Get somebody that is an expert on 1031 exchanges. Not every real estate agent or escrow company would be knowledgeable on 1031 exchanges. I've seen so many cases where the real estate agent says, Oh, yes, I know that the 1031 exchange, and my escrow officer is going to help you. And then we end up paying a ton of taxes.
1: Yeah. So you have to be careful with who you work with. Yes. Yeah. And let's talk about write offs. So I have been told that Obviously, like if you are just a regular Joe Schmo, you typically take the standard deduction. But if you have business expenses, you can start doing write-offs, which is probably better if you have a lot. Is there like a limitation to the write-offs and has anything changed in the last couple of years in regards to that? There's 2018, as
0: we all know, there was a tax law change or bill that came in into effect that it was going to finish in 2025. You need to be very careful when it comes to being in business for yourself through a Schedule C, which is a sole proprietor, self-employed, entrepreneur, because if you're just generating certain expenses to utilize it for tax purposes or as a benefit, the IRS can come back and say, hey, you actually don't have a business, this is a hobby, then therefore you owe me all those taxes. And how would they determine that If you generate losses for three consecutive years, they can come back and say, prove to me that you're actually in business, not just with a business license, not just with a fictitious business name, and not just by having a business checking account. Prove to me that you were actually putting all the energy and effort on making this business work. Otherwise, they're going to consider it as a hobby, meaning every single loss that you took for those years, they're going to add it back up and charge you the interest, penalties, and interest. I've seen bills in the hundred thousands of dollars just because of that. So how do you prove that it's not a hobby? By generating income, revenue. Let's say that you are renting your property, right? What you need to do is everything is based on supporting documentation and supporting evidence everything it's going to be on you, the taxpayer, not on the tax authority, the IRS or the state of California. What they're going to do is they're going to be, we presume or we think that this is a hobby. Now it's on you to prove to them that it's not. How can you prove to them? Let's say that you have had difficulties renting your property. How do you prove it? By showing to them, hey, I've advertised on Craigslist and the newspaper on Facebook here and here and there every single day for the last six months and nothing. I've done this, I've done that. But you need to have evidence and supporting documentation to prove to them that it's not on you, that it's on the market, that it's because of this. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so, but if you're able to generate some income, does that count or is it just like the total year's worth of If you're losing money over years because they're a hobby.
0: It does count if you generate some revenue. Let's say that your property is only rented or leased nine months out of the year. It's not common, but it would happen to you. It could happen to you, right? So that's okay if you lose some money. Maybe that year you lost money because you only rented it for nine months. But the following year you lost money because you had to repair the roof. So you lost money, you utilize or you strategize to be able to spend all the roof repair at that year. It's not uncommon. It's not normal, but it's not uncommon that you can spend that. You need to know cost segregation. That's a tax strategy, cost segregation. A lot of construction companies utilize that. The following year, you had an accident and You could only rent your property for three months. So you generate a loss We're three years consecutive with losses, right? There's external factors that you can prove to the authorities and they can say, okay, it's not a hobby, but if you rent your property five, 10 days, one month out of the year, that's not a business.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. So basically you can show them, look, the reason why I am not doing as well as you hope is because hey, I've had some difficulties, things have changed, especially with the crazy market conditions. And it's not just that, oh, I'm holding a rental property, quote unquote, and only renting out for a month out of the year and just using this as like a scam to the government.
0: Yes, like to get a tax benefit, let's say. Exactly, yeah, to get the tax benefit. There's a difference between tax cheating, tax evasion and tax elimination or tax deferring, okay? So it's two different things, different things.
1: Exactly. Everything we're doing here is legal. Anything that you do that's illegal, you are immediately going to be at fault. It's
0: on the taxpayer.
1: Exactly. And when it comes to write-off, do you actually have to be incorporated? Like, do you need to have an LLC? Nope. Okay, so what can you write-off and how does an IRS determine that it's a legit write-off or not?
0: Well, the tax code, it's a very uh, complex and that's your guide. Now, each write-off, according to the law, to the tax code, must comply with two very basic things. The first thing is that it has to be a necessary expense so you can write it off. And second, that it has to be an ordinary expense. So let me explain. A necessary expense, it's an expense that it's going to help you grow your business. An ordinary expense, it's an expense that it's common In your trade of business okay so if you're standing in front of let's say this cell phone and you have questions ask those two questions is this a necessary expense if you answer yes your following question is is this an ordinary expense with those two you can actually write it off from your tax return okay now if you answer no to any of those two questions Probably it's not a taxable deduction. Does that make sense?
1: It makes sense. Now, I've heard some things with regards to education. So a lot of people who are new to real estate investing, they want to obviously get their top tier education. There are some wonderful programs out there, but they cost, they say, $30,000. I've been told that because they're not already in the business, that that 30000 is not actually tax deductible. That is correct. Yikes. If you've been
0: in business or you're just starting the business, okay, you could actually consider that $30,000 as a startup cost. A startup cost, it's not an expense that you can deduct 100% immediately in that tax year. You would actually have to amortize it for 180 months. That's a lot of months. That's a lot of months, yes, but you're hoping to be in business for that long.
1: Okay. So you get it back over time and it's considered a startup cost and not a deduction. But in the future, let's say that you've been in business for some time and then you take this $50,000 coaching, then you're able to write it off. Coaching is different than a seminar to learn a trade. Oh, okay.
0: Okay. Let's talk about that. That's when it comes to your tax advisor that can strategize on how to classify or request the invoices from your coaching. Coaching, it's a necessary and ordinary expense to help you grow your business. Even though you're learning, they're guiding you like an attorney or an accountant on how to do your business, correct? So then therefore, it's an immediate necessity for your business to run. Then therefore, it's a taxable, a tax deductible expense for that current year. Now, if you're learning a trade or a business, then that's different. It's like me, when I went to to university and my masters, I could not have taken that expense through my business because I was learning a trade. Doctors, their school, in their tax returns.
1: Just to clarify, if you are brand new starting out and you're getting coaching, you are allowed to deduct that on year one? Yeah, you can. Oh, okay. But for like a seminar program, that doesn't. that's not okay for year one. But let's say that you are doing continuing education. So let's say you've been in the business for a while and now you want to take the program. Is it not deductible in year one?
0: That's deductible. Continuing education, it's deductible. If you're learning the trade, it's not.
1: So let's say that you are just getting into real estate investing and you're starting to go to conferences, you're paying for Airbnb and flights and stuff. Are those deductible? Yes, they are. Okay. Because it's, Even though it's year one, they're not considered startup costs. Correct.
0: They're coaching you.
1: Okay. Got it. conferences are also considered coaching. Yes. Oh, interesting. Is there like a limitation to how long you have to be in business before is no longer considered startup costs?
0: Actually startup costs is a pre expenses before you launch your business and you're considered launching your business. As soon as you generate revenue or you're doing every single effort to generate the revenue. I
1: see. So uh, I guess, for example, let's say you're a real estate agent, maybe before getting your license, that's considered a startup cost after getting your license. And now you're like out there doing stuff. Yeah. If you start attending seminars and stuff, then you're already in the business. You're good. Right. Keep good
0: track of all those expenses, because if they're less than $5,000, you can actually deduct them on the first year.
1: Mm, okay. And what about vehicles? I heard sometimes you can deduct vehicles as long as it's for business purposes. You can,
0: as long as for business purposes, as long as you utilize it more, than 50% for your business, you can actually, if you're purchasing the vehicle, you can utilize 179 deduction, which is you can deduct the 100% of the vehicle. Obviously it cannot be a, a luxury vehicle, but there's regulations for that. Uh, you can actually pay a lease from your business or deduct the interest from a loan as an expense. And you can either take the mileage or the actual expenses of running and upkeeping a vehicle. Nice. One of the two.
1: Yeah, and when it comes to deducting things, I do know that at some point you start to get into the 1099 territory. Do you want to talk about 1099s and when they're necessary? Well, 1099s, if you're renting the property, okay, you are actually going to get a 1099
0: from your managing company. If you have some managing company, the managing company is paying you the rent on behalf of, the, of your tenant, So you're gonna get a 1099, okay? One thing, you are supposed to report in your tax return for that rental property, every single income, regardless of whether you receive or not a 1099, okay? We've had a lot of people come to us and say, hey, I haven't received my 1099, so I can't do my tax return. Well, show me your bank statements. Let me add every single deposit from your bank statement plus anything that you're receiving cash. Oh, but but uh, my deposits are more than my 1099. That's right, that's the amount that you must report. Or, oh, they're not gonna send me a 1099, but I wanna deduct all the expenses. Well, that's not right. You must report all the income, regardless of whether you receive a 1099 or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, what about if you are hiring people to do work on your property, And you're paying them 1099 what is the limitation for that
0: we actually have an internal control which means best practices which means the rules to the game as to when it comes to independent contractors like the ones you just said before we pay those independent contractors we actually have an agreement we actually have a non-disclosure agreement and they must provide us a w9 And if we are paying them by direct deposit or through Gusto or ACH, proof of their banking account information just to validate the deposits, right? So before we do any payment to them, they must provide us a W-9. If we are paying them more than $600, they're marked as a 1099. At the end of the year, before January 31st, they're going to receive a 1099 from us.
1: When you send out a 1099, does it have to go through the mail or you allowed to just do like an e-filing for 1099s?
0: You actually e-file, but you can actually send them an email with their 1099 or you can send them by regular mail or hand delivered.
1: Got it. For W9s, for those of our listeners who don't know what it is, do you want to explain what W9s are?
0: A W9 is a certification where they tell us their business name or their legal name, and they provide us their most current address and their social security or tax ID number, depending on the type of structure or business that they're running. So based on that, we are going to deliver them, hand them a 1099 for the services rendered during that tax year.
1: Have you ever had a situation where someone wrote some phony numbers on a W-9? Like social security didn't match up or 10 number didn't match up? Yes, a lot
0: of times, not most of the times, but a lot of times people write different social security numbers or tax ID numbers because they don't want to be liable for those taxes. It's not on us because everybody that provides you a W-9 certifies it under penalty of perjury that they're providing you the most accurate information that they have.
1: I see. So, uh, for example, if someone wrote you like a bogus W-9, and then the IRS comes back to you and said, hey, this person doesn't actually exist. You can just say, hey, look, I have a W-9 that says these numbers. And then that's their problem, not, not yours anymore. Right. Okay. That's good to know that you, you, don't, you personally don't have to like verify that these numbers are correct.
0: There's actually no way to verify it unless you pay for a service to validate that the social security or tax ID number that you're being provided does match to the information you're providing to that company. That company will not provide you or tell you who belongs to but will validate the data that you provide.
1: Okay, that's good to know too. And I guess like the same thing happens if you send out the 1099 and then they don't report on their end, that's their bad, it doesn't have to do with you. That's their bad, yes. I see. Uh, What if they work for a company and uh, I guess they give you a receipt, do you still need to give them a 1099?
0: No, because that's considered a
1: reimbursement. Most
0: companies have to hold or have to have an accountable plan. An accountable plan, it's part of a tax planning where the government, the IRS, if you write a check to that individual and you are audited, the IRS immediately can consider it as a salary or income to that person. In reality, what you just said, it's not income, it's reimbursement of an expense which means that that expense that you or that person incurred on, it's being translated or transplanted to the company or the individual. So you're just reimbursing that person. You don't need to give them a 1099 for that reimbursement.
1: Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, for example, I have had independent contractors come through, like a general contractor, and then we give them 1099s because they don't have a receipt for us. But I've used a subcontractor who works for an HVAC company and he came in and he did all my air conditioning systems and then gave me a receipt for, let's say $4,000 because I have this receipt for $4,000. I don't need to write him a 1099 for $4,000. Correct. It's not income to them. I see. So what's the difference? Like why is he able to write a receipt versus my general contractor who cannot write me a receipt for the work?
0: First of all, I don't understand why the general contractor did not write you or gave you those receipts I'm pretty sure he probably increased a percentage to those expenses.
1: Oh, just to clarify, I'm not talking about receipt for the item. I'm talking about receipt for the labor. Like the whole job costs like $100,000. Here's an invoice for $100,000. Can I just use that invoice for $100,000 versus sending him a 1099 for all that money? Oh,
0: that's different. I see. That's $100,000 for the job. So that does require a 1099 if it's a sole proprietor if you're writing the check to a corporation you're technically not required to provide them a 1099 if you're writing the check for under an individual then you're required to provide them a 1099 if you pay them more than 600 dollars. but if that contractor would have come to you and say hey it's a hundred thousand dollars for the whole job plus there's $20,000 in miscellaneous expenses. Here's the re- invoices or receipts for those $20,000. You're going to write two checks or just one check, $120,000. The 1099 that I would have provided to him would have been a 1099 for $100,000 because I actually have the receipts or the invoices for the additional $20,000 that I reimbursed. Them. Got it. Those $20,000 are not income to him nor an expense to him because I have the invoices for those $20,000. They become an expense to me. So those $20,000 he paid out of pocket. It's not an income for him. It's reimbursing to match or kill those $20,000. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah. So basically, if you're paying an individual person, that's what you need to send 1099. Correct. But if they have their own company, let's say it's some LLC that they have, it's a general contracting firm. Then in that case, you don't need a 1099 in the company because they're already a corporation. You've paid them a check and you're good to go? Correct. Because technically corporate checks or checks
0: payable to a corporation or LLC cannot be cashed. They have to be deposited.
1: Mm, I see. So that's the difference, huh?
0: That's a major difference.
1: That's interesting because, you know, in our world, I personally have never cashed a check before. It's always gone to a deposit. It's always gone to a bank account but there are places where you can just cash the check and get income and then not actually have to report it. Oh, interesting. Now when it comes to uh, tracking your write-offs and your expenses, is it okay to just have like a spreadsheet on Excel or Google sheets writing down what you paid for and the number, or do you actually have to save every receipt that you have?
0: You have to actually save every single receipt over $75, regardless of how you paid it. Okay. Okay. A bank statement or credit card statement is not enough. You have to keep copy or image or whatever documentation to support that expense over $75. Hmm.
1: Would you have a preferred method of keeping track of all these different things? Because it can be a pain to keep track of all this.
0: Plain and simple. If
1: you're paying it
0: with a credit card or bank statement, just keep a, a picture of the receipt and save it. That's it. Obviously when you do your accounting, you're gonna account for, and you don't need to attach to your accounting those receipts, just save them. If it's less than $75, it's actually doesn't matter if you save them or not. My recommendation is save them. Just keep a culture of saving all the receipts and avoid paying it with cash. Use your credit card or bank card or check. Now, when it comes to making sure or determining whether it's a business expense or a personal expense, separate both okay and if you have the slightest doubt whether it could be business expense use your personal account to pay for and then reimburse yourself never mix personal and business expenses in your business account never
1: please yeah and tell us the ramifications of doing that
0: first of all you have no control of your business and second if you're a corporation llc or legal entity you're actually commingling funds, which means that you can actually lose or pierce your corporate bail. I am no an attorney, but I can explain to you a little bit about what corporate bail is. Consult with your attorney. Corporate bail is the legal protection that the entities provide you. You've heard probably that you're only liable for what your capital contribution is in your company. And that's it. When it comes to owning a corporation or an LLC, correct? Well, if you were to utilize your business account for personal expenses, you're actually piercing the corporate bail, which means that you're taking away that protection that the corporation gives you, and the court can find you and say, Hey, since you use your business account for personal expenses then therefore you're liable for any debt that the company has so never use your person your corporate account for personal expenses use your personal account for business expenses that's okay but
1: reimburse yourself Mm -hmm. what about for food and taking clients out to lunch or dinner use your personal account and then reimburse yourself that's my
0: rule thumb if you have to use your business account Don't use it for your personal Starbucks. Don't use it for your personal lunch. That's not a deductible expense. That's actually considered a personal expense. The rules for the IRS is they will pay 50% of your business meetings and restaurants because they'll pay for your client, not for you. You must save the receipt. You must save the messaging that you had between your client to invite them to that meeting. In the back of the receipt, write what type of meeting, what did you discuss with them, who did you met with, what time, what place, be as thorough as possible.
1: Mm -hmm. And so what about this like $75 threshold? Do you still need to worry about that? Yes, you have to. Okay, so under 75, you don't necessarily need a receipt? You don't necessarily need a receipt, but you
0: do need proof that you met with the client that you're saying that you incurred the expense on. Outlook confirmation that, hey, Uh, Let's meet here so we can discuss this and this and this and this and that. The reply of accepting the meeting, that's proof that you
1: met with that individual. Can you talk about some of the things that your clients have done that have gotten them into trouble in the past?
0: Yeah. Buying uh, Starbucks on a daily basis uh, with their business account, $5 for $56 lunch. Those are not deductible for the business for tax purposes. Utilizing their business account for travel expenses, if we notice that it's a business expense, trust me, when you go through a NADA IRS audit or a state audit, they're going to see that. Another trouble that they got into is having independent contractors when they're employees. I've actually had a couple of clients that are flippers. We have actually had to go to court and they've been sentenced to probation their license is suspended and fined upwards
1: to half a million dollars. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Because I don't understand what you mean. They're contractors, but they're also employees.
0: Nope, they're not independent contractors. They're misclassified by independent contractors because hiring them avoids them paying payroll taxes. If you hire somebody to do some repairs in your home or in your flip, but they're not actual contractors, You have to hire them as an employee. You have to pay payroll tax.
1: So if they're like just, are you saying the difference being like they don't have their contractor's license or what do you mean they're not contractors?
0: Well, let's say that our clients are real estate investors and they do flips, right? When it comes to flipping, you can actually have, you don't need to have a license to repair the property. It's your property. You can hire people to do it. This client hired individuals that hold no license to do the repairs, okay? So since they had no license as contractors, they cannot be hired as independent contractors. Does that make sense? I see. A lot of flippers do that.
1: So now they're considered employees. It's
0: common in the trade. Oh. So they're actually employees. Yeah. You have to put them on payroll. You have to have workman's comp. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, see, I learned something new today, too. I didn't know that, that basically they need to have a license. Otherwise, they're considered your employee. Oh, yeah. They're considered your employees first. Second,
0: if they go out and bid on that project and charge more than $500, they're actually infringing on contractor law and they can actually be fined and imprisoned.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Very cool. And while we're on the topic, right now, we're seeing our little coronavirus scare. Right now, we're actually quarantined here in the Bay Area. How is that affecting your clients and their business, and as well as how does that affect you guys as CPAs?
0: Well, actually, to us, it hasn't affected us directly in our office. We all are working from home. We have the infrastructure in place before this to work remotely. And with our clients, we are actually reaching out to every single, each of them, and we're actually encourage them not to stop, continue business as is, communicate with your employees remotely, help your clients in whatever form, shape, or necessity that your client has. It's time for delivery. It's time to hold your client and see how you can help each other. Okay, Well, since we're quarantined, let me catch on my Netflix. Hells no, that's not what quarantine means right now, unless you're sick. It's not catching up on Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, and all those streams. No, it's time to deliver with your clients and plan for the third and fourth quarter. It's going to be a crappy second quarter. There's no doubt about it but it's on you to continue moving forward. It's not on your clients. It's on you to continue moving forward. I know that as flippers, it's a little bit difficult because how are you going to have your construction crew there? But you can, if you actually plan properly, you can have all your crew. It's going to have a delay, but you can have the painters. You can have the tile layers. You can have little by little schedule people around it, and that's it. I know that in the Bay Area, it's actually a quarantine that you cannot go out of your house unless it's necessary, like to the doctor, to the supermarket and things like that. So it's a little bit difficult, but it's time for you to plan, to review your process, to review your systems, to review your database, to do research, to plan and create blueprints. That's what you're supposed to be doing right now. Think of the future. Most of us create budgets or plans for one year. Forget about that. Create a plan or budget for five, 10 years. See your company long-term, not in one year, not a 12-month period, five, 10 years planning. That's what's gonna make your company grow and be above the curve right now in this current situation.
1: Exactly. There's a lot of fortune that was made during the 08 09 crisis, you know, for people who were able to buy during the dip. So now it's actually a good opportunity for people who want to do something great.
0: Start creating alliances with financing companies, with lenders, and say, hey, how can we work together? Fortunes are made in crisis. Top 500 industry companies create wealth, okay? Not revenue, they generate wealth when crisis occurs
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and speaking of the whole virus situation i know that you do get citations if you just walk around right now because you're not supposed to be outside but also that construction is considered a necessary thing so you're actually allowed to to work on construction right now
0: so plan accordingly plan 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 don't hold back
1: yeah so i also was told that taxes actually got pushed out So, you know, normally we have our tax day on April 15th. And right now I think filing isn't due until the 30th, or is that not correct?
0: Actually, tax returns are due on April 16th, 2020, for your 2019th tax year. April 15th is a Sunday, so it's pushed to April 16th. Now, you have to file your tax return on April 16th unless you request an extension which grants you 6 months to file your tax return the government just extended your tax liability if you owe less than a million dollars for 90 days meaning that you can pay your tax liability until July 15th without being assessed penalties and interest on that million dollars if you're an individual and 10 million dollars if you're a corporation okay so if you owe less than a million dollars you have up to a july 15th to pay that tax liability okay if you owe less than 10 million dollars on a corporation tax return you have up to july 15th to pay that 10 million dollars now you have to file by the due date unless you file an extension my recommendation to all of our clients is file an extension regardless of your tax liability in our firm we actually filed every single tax return for every single client of ours march 15th we have no client going on
1: extension oh do you want to talk about that because i thought you just said that you want them to go on extension why are we filing them early
0: When it comes to their corporation or S-corporation or partnership tax returns, since we handled their accounting, they did not file extensions.
1: I see. Do you want to talk about that? Like, why do we want to extend until October? Because I know there's a common practice. I had a friend who used to work at Ernst & Young, and they always almost file in October.
0: Yeah, because they're not prepared. That's why they file extensions. There's no reason to file an extension unless you're not prepared, unless you don't have all your documentation, unless you have a possibility of incurring on a accrual expenses. But if you're not planning during the year, if you're not meeting with your accountant during the year on a regular basis, which is uh, on a quarterly basis, and you don't have all your supporting documentation, yes, file an extension, 2% your tax return. But with us, we meet with a client on a regular basis, either monthly or quarterly. We do have a tax planning for every single tax line that we have so we are able to file tax return on or before the due date now taxes regardless you have to pay 90 percent of the possible tax due on or before the tax due date which is the tax filing date which is march 15th or april fifteenth. it doesn't extend if it was a regular case it does not extend your tax payment date it only extends Tax presenting date, tax filing date, an extension. That's all it does.
1: Yeah. You have to pay the liability at that time. Otherwise, you have to pay a little bit of penalty. Do you pay penalty? Pay penalty and interest on it. Yeah. Yes. Don't finance
0: through the IRS or the state of California. They are very, very expensive finances.
1: Exactly. Pay your taxes beforehand. And when should someone go and speak to a CPA? Don't talk to a CPA unless they're, they know
0: what taxes are and unless they know your industry. Being a CPA does not guarantee that you know taxes, that you know real estate, that you know accounting, okay? Not all every single CPA knows that. Having a CPA allows you to represent a taxpayer or sign financials or uh, do certain other activities, okay? Talk to your tax advisor or accountant or business consultant or coach on a regular basis. Every successful individual has mentors and has coaches. There's differences between a mentor and a coach. A coach will guide you on what to do in your business and how to do it in the business. A mentor is going to help you grow personally and on your business. A mentor will let you do things on your own by telling you stories or teaching you. A coach is gonna hold your hand and help you do those things.
1: Yeah, but if you wanted your taxes done this year, let's say April 15th, you probably shouldn't find a CPA on April 14th, right? So when would you go and talk to someone uh, about your taxes if you wind in fire? Now, if you're in business on your own,
0: don't try to do everything on your own. If you have a heart attack, you're not going to perform CPR or you're going to perform open-heart surgery on yourself. You're going to find a cardiologist or somebody that knows CPR, right? So don't do taxes on your own. Right. For us, I have 23 years of experience. I went to school for over 20 years just to become an accountant and a tax expert. So just being in business for one year or opening a TurboTax software and answering questions, it's not going to give you or maximize your tax refund or help you reduce your tax liability. Do talk to somebody that knows your industry and knows taxes.
1: Yeah, so the earlier the better. Hopefully maybe two months before taxes are due, right? Yes, and hopefully during the year, at least once a
0: quarter. Yes, to go over your strategy, to go over your numbers, because you might be losing money,
1: even though there's money in your bank account. Right, to go over your strategy and what's going on and stuff like that. That makes sense. So let's talk about your services. How can you help some of our real estate investors here in the Bay Area?
0: We can actually go over your business plan, your business model, and make a determination whether you're in the right path or not, and ask you if you have numbers. And numbers, it's not your bank statement. Numbers is financial statement. Not everyone in, in business has financials. So we help you prepare them. We actually prepare them for you. And we teach you how to understand that pile of numbers. It's a little bit different and complex, even though there's letters right next to each number on how we
1: came up with those numbers. And you're able to help everyone even though they're not in the same location as you guys?
0: Yes, yes. We can do it remotely by Zoom, Skype, webinars, telephone, you name it. We can do it anyway. We actually help people in Germany, Italy, Australia. We actually had a client reach out to us yesterday. He's actually in Tanzania. wow, And he wants to buy two properties right now. And we're helping him do all the transfers uh, close escrows, and he just got two properties from Tasmania.
1: Nice. That sounds really exciting. So, how can people get in contact with you guys? They can actually reach out to us to our office,
0: 619 677 6512, or by email to Redondo at invictus advisors.com. Perfect.
1: So, Vidal, do you have any last tips before we end our show
0: today? Yes. Consult somebody that you trust that has business experience don't seek opinion seek advice and continue moving forward in this current situation the worst thing that you can do is stop your business as small business owners if we stop one week just stop one week it's going to take you six months to recover Hmm. don't move forward it's a scary time the worst thing you can do is be scared go back stop, and then figure out what you're going to do once things come back to normality. Things are normal. The only difference is that we're home. Things are normal. Yeah. Don't
1: lose your momentum.
0: No. And forget about the news. Forget about everything you're hearing out there.
1: It's just opinions. Yeah. Sounds good. Misleading. Yeah. right, Al, well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Cool. Take care. Here's some of the key takeaways from this episode by properly structuring your LLCs, you're able to effectively consolidate your assets without exposing your properties to unnecessary liabilities. The tax code is also very complicated and you need to know what's going on. So make sure you work with the certified professionals to make sure that you're taking full advantage of all the benefits that you're entitled to. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.